Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, gun violence and legal liability. And Richard, we turn today to uh, a lawsuit out of Connecticut where the parents of some of the children who were murdered in the 2012 Newtown shootings are attempting to sue Remington, which manufactured the gun used in the shooting, and they're also trying to sue the wholesaler and the retailer under the claim that the gun was put on the market. And I'm quoting them here with no conceivable use for it other than the mass killing of other human beings, close quote. So we can talk about the ought here in a minute, but let's focus on the, the is first. As things presently stand, in a set of circumstances like this, who would normally be in a position to be held legally liable and under what circumstances? Well, the simplest explanation is the most powerful and in some sense the most useless. The person who is clearly liable for everything is the party who actually did the shooting even though this poor man essentially killed himself. Uh, then if you're trying to figure out would there be a secondary form of liability, it would be the person in possession of the gun before it was wrested away and that would turn out to be his mother who had this gun collection. Uh, then the third person most possible in there would be the retailer and it's here that the legal difficulties become very acute. Uh, there is no allegation in this particular case that the retailer violated any law having to do with inspections, approval of license, the type of weapon sold, and so forth. So essentially what you have to do is to argue that a sale which was lawful and approved and regulated by the government is in fact illegal because it turns out there's, quote, no other conceivable use for the weapon. Now, this is preposterous on its face. I have no idea what these weapons are about, but I'm sure that it is not the case that large fractions of them and virtually all of them have been only used to perpetrate mass killings. So if they are usable for hunting for or something like that or for target shooting or something of that sort, then it seems to me that that statement is false. The reason they're trying to put that in there is to make this look as though it's a doomsday machine. Once this thing gets into the hands of the retailer, then it goes out. The only thing that can happen is mass killing of other individuals. As you go further down the chain, it turns out that the liability becomes even more preposterous in the sense that the wholesaler has no idea of who's going to be sold to, um, has no particular responsibility other than to take a sealed container filled with some guns and to transfer it to a retailer and it's, a, it's essentially it's an efficiency device um, for effective transfers. It's not essentially the source of real control. So then you've got to go back to the manufacturer and the correct analysis is if the gun is defective so that it, for example when you shoot it, it breaks in your hand or it misfires at something if that defect can be shown to persist as it goes from hand to hand, then anybody who's injured by the defect can sue the manufacturer of it. Under current law, which I don't approve of, uh, retailers and distributors are generally held liable to the same standards as manufacturers. Typically, plaintiffs don't bring them into the case because it muddies responsibility in the eyes of a jury. So if you have a, a solvent manufacturer, they'll only go after that party. Uh, but this lawsuit, at least under traditional principles, should be a dead loser. Now, you were getting there to the next thing that I was going to ask you. You said there that you don't approve of the way that the existing law is structured. Explain that. Well, I, I didn't – I said 
I, I don't approve of this particular complaint. The, uh, the existing law, I think, is about right on these questions in which essentially uh, the nearer you are to the possession at the time that the weapon goes off, the greater the culpability. Uh, so uh, the strong lawsuit is against the person who kills it, but of course that person is insolvent, so nothing can be done. Uh, the next case is against the mother, as I mentioned, and here the argument would be, did she take sufficient care to lock these guns up in such a way that they would not fall into the hands of somebody who was likely to use them for danger. And this, of course, is also a kind of a tricky case because it's not the same thing as entrustment. Entrustment is the situation where the mother gives the gun to the son knowing that he's unstable, and then he turns out and lo and behold shoots somebody. It doesn't seem that that was alleged here. Uh, the negligent keeping cases are always harder to win than the negligent entrustment cases. Um, it also shows you something about the arbitrariness of this particular case. I gather the mother of the assailant in this case had, I think, several weapons in the closet, any of which might have been sufficient to do it. And it would be very strange if it turns out Remington this time, Colt the next time, and so forth, depending upon which of the weapons he happens to pick out of the shelf. And so I think, in effect, that as a law scoot under current law, I think that this suit is is probably a loser, but it has very high publicity, and the hope of the lawsuit will be to attract attention back again to guns so that maybe some legislation will be brought that will change the rules under which they could be either sold or held. Richard, if you were being given this policy portfolio, trying to think about ways that you could possibly address the problem of mass shootings, would tort liability even enter into the conversation with you? Is that how high does that rank as far as policy tools that you could use here? Well, you know, first of all, is against the assailant almost never because uh, murder is often followed by suicide or cop suicide by cop, as it's sometimes called. Um, trying to go after the mother um, of limited means, uh, who's distraught beyond all belief in any event, in order to claim deaths for twenty six children, um, that's not going to win. And the other lawsuits are losers. I thing. And they also don't have any desirable effect. That is, what you're trying to do is to make sure that guns are used for legitimate purposes and not for illegitimate purposes. And if you bring this lawsuit about people back on the distribution chain, uh, essentially you'll shut down the gun industry because they will not be able to discriminate between the good and the bad parties. So I think liability is just the wrong tool to try to deal with this thing. The question then is, what do you do on the ground? And I've actually written right. about this on the Hoover column. And Essentially, what you have to understand is that this is very complicated relationship between the number of guns and the dangers that guns pose. And so if it turns out you're in a world in which there's a single gun in the hand of a sort of a maniacal killer, uh, it's a very dangerous place. If you double the number of guns and put the second one in the hands of somebody who's a student in its use who could gun down the girl killer before he kills everybody else, two guns are now safer than one. Well, when you're going to these gun-free zones, what it is is it's an open invitation for every crazy person in the world to say – Yes, I do want to die, and I'm quite happy to kill myself, but I will only do my life's work if I bring down 20 innocent children with me. And so I have tended to think that what you want to do is to have somebody who's armed in these uh, situations in order to be able to oppose them. That is, I think of this in terms of the Israeli model, where essentially every off-duty policeman and soldiers generally required to carry their weapons um, when they're going about because of the constant risk of the terrorists doing something which would hurt somebody. And, you know, if you, you don't 
want to have sort of random people taking guns into school. But if there are ex-policemen, if there are ex-servicemen, if there are people who are trained and licensed with the guns and so forth, if there are people we have special confidence in, sprinkling one or two of these things around um, a school makes a huge difference because now, in effect, uh, you don't have to wait 30 or 45 seconds for some kind of a super police response. There's somebody who could be there. And if the gunman knows that there's somebody whom we cannot identify who has that weapon, they may be more reluctant to go there because the last thing these people want to do is to raise their weapon to be shot down and not kill anybody uh, given their own psychopathic condition. And so I think, in effect, that organizing a defensive presence with the use of weapons is a much more efficient device. The other alternatives, you know, do we give training and things like that? I regard, or do we arrest people who are mental defectives and incarcerate them? I regard those as vastly inferior alternatives. What about any of the arguments, the ones you hear most often from the left about restricting supply, whether it's certain kinds of guns, whether it's limiting the amount of ammunition that people can have? Are you sympathetic to any of those arguments? No. I mean I think most of them essentially what they will do is they will handicap and hamper people who might use guns for innocent purposes or for defensive purposes. But anybody who wants to engage in murder and is at this kind of determination will know full well that there's an underground market, that there are over 300 million guns in the United States. Nobody knows exactly how many. Uh, that in fact you could carry two ammunition clips instead of one and finish the job off. You may have a gun in your holster as well as one in your hand. And so I think, in effect, that those things are largely a femoral in the way in which it goes. It's also important to remember that if you actually look at the situation on the ground, uh, the causation runs in the opposite direction. The number of guns that seem to be available today in the United States has increased in the last 20 years. The number of homicides in general has gone down during that exact period. The number of mass killings, which are a very tiny fraction of the total number of deaths, actually starts to go up, and they all tend to take place in gun-free zones. So I think in effect, as I mentioned before, that possession of the weapon is the pivot point on which you wish to attract your attention. It means that resistance to the people in possession is the way in which you want to respond. It is not a situation of wandering far and wide, trying to push on some remote portion of the situation, hoping that as the string gets pushed, and that it will hit only the right things and not the wrong things. Every time you go upstream, you become overly inclusive. If you go Go downstream, you avoid that problem. There is a risk, of course, that somebody who's given a gun in self-defense or for the defense of others could use it in a malign way. Uh, but one of the things I think it's pretty convincing is you try to find cases where people who have been trained and licensed uh, in guns or certified by the NRA or some organization, none of them are on the list of mass killers. So I regard that at least at the moment as a very small risk. And so what you want to do is to shift the policy in that direction, do it slowly but emphatically. And if you then then start to see some unpleasant surprises. What you then do is you try to recalibrate to figure out what you did wrong in order to improve the situation. Uh, but I regard this sort of the Clinton-Sanders, now Sanders proposal, not before, of trying to sort of reorganize this thing top down as no better than trying to reorganize an economy from the top down done by people who think when they push on levers in one place that things are going to pop out in the right fashion or another, not knowing all of the intermediate steps in which it's possible to either nullify or to subvert the program that the top-down regulator is trying to impose. Is there any analog for that, by the way, anywhere in our system of, of torts? Is there anywhere where the liability goes as far back in the supply chain as the Sanders-Clinton position would take us? 
Yeah, well, the whole law of product liability, in effect, has that particular element, and it's probably worth explaining for a second or two, the way in which it started and the way in which it got perverted. Um, Essentially, the basic rule in the tort law system before, say, 1900 was that it was the party in possession who was responsible, and everybody who's back in the chain was not. So there was always a strict liability for ultra-hazardous activities. The guy who stored dynamite, if it went off, would have very few excuses if it damaged his neighbors. Uh, The then question is, when do you start to go back? And the essential pattern that dominated the early cases had the following sort of elements in it. The first element was that you actually had to have a defect in the product, which meant that when it was used in the fashion that was intended, um, somehow or other it misfired. Uh, So you build a coach and the wheels aren't strong enough to essentially carry the coach when you attach it to a team of horses. So what you want to do is to talk about latent defects because those are the things which will catch people unaware. Then the thing starts to go through intermediaries and the basic rule there was the intermediate should just be a conveyor belt. It should not be somebody who changes or transforms the thing. Uh, So for example, if you have a can of tuna fish which has got some tin slivers in it and it's a sealed container, you know that the guy in the middle has not done something wrong. But if it turns out that what you're selling is a Coke bottle or a bottle of milk, the Coke bottle can be shaken so the carbonation explodes when you lift it out and the milk can turn sour because you don't keep it properly pasteurized or the temperature controls are inadequate. So in those cases, you want to stop thinking upstream and start thinking middle stream. But in the original case, if it turns out that the product is now transformed in its original condition with the latent defect, then the third stage in the argument is Um, Well, what does the user do? If he knows about the defect, even though it's latent, you treat it as though it's a patent. That is an open defect. If he doesn't know about it, you never want to allow this guy to recover or at least to recover in full. If he starts to do something with it, the particular tool that he should not do if it is sound. So you have a defective carriage on the one hand, but it can only run with a team of four horses. And what you do is you load it down with a heavy load and then put eight horses in front of it and take it on a bumpy road at a gallop. You want that to be a downstream fault, even though there's some upstream complication. This three-part situation, latent defect, um, original condition, and ordinary use, uh, dominated the product liability law up to about, say, 1965, 1970. And then all of a sudden, it flipped over. And so in the original cases, there was a famous remark by a great judge named Stanley Full, Full, who said this, is that a manufacturer has the right to expect that other people will use the products in accordance with its design and its specifications. And if they don't do it, they're doing it at their own risk. So that means you want to give them full information about the machine tool or the airplane or the car or whatever else is they're taking. The modern law shifts it around. And then they say that the manufacturer doesn't have a right to respect but has the duty to expect that other people will use things in foolish ways. So now if you take a car and you drive it at 150 miles an hour when you're drunk and you wrap it around the telephone pole, somebody could say, you know, those side panels, even though they're in conformity with statutes, they're not quite strong enough. That change is essentially ruinous to the law. And what happens in the gun case is thus far, we keep remarkably close to the original paradigm about latent defects, ordinary use, and intermediate transmission. And what the plaintiff's bar is trying to do is to change this whole thing so that we get this other paradigm. The moment you could foresee that somebody could use a gun stupidly, then unless you protect that guy from using it, you're going to be responsible. And it's just absolutely the wrong approach. What you have to do 
is to figure out what is the efficient use of guns. If you believe, as some people do, and I do not, that no gun should ever be sold to anybody, the appropriate thing is to have a nationwide ban. Good luck with 325 million guns. But if you believe that guns have valuable and non-valuable uses, the product liability scheme that existed between 1840 and about 1950 or so is essentially a very accurate way in which to handle it. That's what the legislation from 2005 or so actually did. That's what Sanders is willing to undo and Clinton is eager to undo. Uh, The woman has essentially no serious judgment about how complex systems are put together. And all of this stuff is kind of politically driven and and it's a tragedy. I mean, you know, there are many things we can try to do, as I've mentioned, to deal with the gun problems and so forth. And if you want to think about indirect things, uh, start thinking about levels of unemployment and despair and lack of opportunity and these things created by high minimum wage and other kinds of restrictions. You know, I don't think you just remove the minimum wage law solely because you think it's going to reduce the amount of violence in society. There are many of other reasons, but I think progressives ought to look long and hard at the kinds of rules that they create, which can create the levels of social isolation and and despair, which can lead people to take weird and strange things. God knows how many crimes are committed in that particular way, but it's certainly not an empty set. Last thing I'll ask you, just in brief, we're in a position now where we have a 4-4 balance on the Supreme Court with an opening uh, from Justice Scalia's death, President Obama wanting to appoint another justice before he departs office. Uh, Ted Cruz, amongst others, has suggested that the Second Amendment potentially hangs in the balance, that if you get a 5-4 balance on the court in favor of the left – that they will be revisiting some of the Second Amendment jurisprudence from just a few years ago. How likely do you think that is if you get a 5-4 liberal court? Uh, well, I, I have a mixed emotion on this. I think the answer is it's not likely. I think it's a virtual certainty. Um, it's not just that decision is going to go. There are lots of other 5-4 decisions that are very close, including the residual um, gaps in the power of the federal government to regulate under the Commerce Clause and so forth. And I would think that every serious 5-4 decision that uh, essentially went against the liberal positions would turn over. The reason I say that is because I think they tend to vote much more as a block on the big issues than do the conservatives where it is already well known that you could pick off either Kennedy or um, Roberts or both on a number of cases, so there's not quite the failings. The other point is I have always thought and claimed that whatever my views on gun control, I think that Heller was wrongly decided. Um, My view is if you read the full amendment, which starts talking about uh, a well-regulated militia being essentially for the security of the of a free state, uh, the right of people to bear, to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That first clause on the militia really matters. And what it was designed to do is to make sure that the federal government cannot overrun state institutions. And there is no state militia in Washington, D.C., which is the capital zone. Uh, what Justice Scalia did was to treat that as surpluses, which is always a mistake, and then to say, you know what, this can't be an absolute right to keep and bear arms. And so it's a presumptive right It's not rational basis that any fool argument will overcome it. It's kind of intermediate scrutiny, and that's where we've gone. Uh, So, you know, my view about it is as an originalist on the Constitution, I think that he got that particular question wrong. This is not an attack on the methodology. In fact, what's striking about the uh, Stevens opinion 
is it's also a vintage originalist opinion. Uh, it's not written like some of the other stuff that he's written, dealing with the takings clause, for example, with environmental protection and you know deciding that carbon dioxide is now a pollutant under the existing statutes. It wins very well under those grounds. Now, there's a fierce debate about this, and I'm in the minority amongst conservatives, but one of the illusions that you have to be aware of when you're dealing with originalism is it's a very complicated methodology. I mean, I've described Scalia goes wrong on that in my Hoover columns on this thing, both this week and a couple of weeks ago. But there's nothing about originalism which says that there can't be disputes within the originalist tradition. It's not a monolith. Um, they're going to be hard cases, sometimes because of unanticipated circumstances, sometimes because of bad drafting, and sometimes for all sorts of weird reasons having to do with procedural postures that nobody could have foreseen in the advance. I am pretty much in that tradition, although my view of the tradition is rather more nuanced and complicated than I think either the Cruz or the Scalia version. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.